Our scripture reading for this morning comes from selected passages in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We're coming into the Advent, which is a time of observance for the coming of the birth of Christ. And as we observe this time, these weeks we'll be focusing on uh, passages that lead us into celebrating and observing Christmas, the coming of the King. And we've been going on for the last several months uh, about David. David, the story of David, the narrative of David is the longest uh, single narrative of, of, a, of a person's life in ancient literature, all of ancient literature. And, and whenever you see something like that, we see, you know, what's, what does a story this lengthy tell us? It teaches us this, what makes or breaks a human life. And this passage, particularly this passage, takes us into the depths of the human condition. It's one of the most famous passages, right, in the Old Testament. Now, it's where David's life completely blows up. And what does it tell you? 
This passage tells us that the Bible is not just a manual. It's absolutely not a manual on how to live a good life. So why do we study David then? Why do we study it? And here's why. If a life like David's can blow up, that means anyone's life can blow up. And if a life like David's can be healed and restored, then anyone's life can be healed and restored. So there's three things we're going to be learning from this passage. First is the power of sin. Second is the power of friendship. And lastly is the power of God's grace. The power of sin, the power of friendship, and the power of God's grace. First, we're going to look at the power of sin. Years prior, David, he was anointed to be the chosen king of Israel. God had chosen him to be the king. Now, this is uh, important because surrounding kings in David's day, they hoarded wealth. They ruled very selfishly, very cruelly. They were very self-preserving. But David was called to be modest. He was called to be just. He was a man after God's own heart, which means he understood the things that grieved God and that God wanted. But over time, what happened was David was starting to become like other kings around him. Right off the bat, verse 1, we see that in the spring, when th- in the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, but David remained. In the springtime, when kings are off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. What's happening here? David's becoming self-preserving. David's becoming lonely. David is experiencing the spiritual decay that's now bubbling up. It's taking place in his life. And it's undetected by him. He doesn't see that. And in this passage, what happens? You see, as we progress, David discovers, he lusts after, and falls for Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba is the beautiful wife of Uriah, the Hittite. You know who Uriah was? A few weeks ago, we learned about Uriah briefly when David was a fugitive, when he was in the wilderness and hiding away in caves. He was being hunted by men. A group of friends voluntarily gathered around David. They came around him. They were called his mighty men. They gathered around him. They risked their lives for David. One of them was Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. He was a man to whom David owed his life. And still, here's David. Now he is king on the throne. That wasn't enough for him. He covets Uriah's wife. He commits adultery with her. And he becomes, over time, he becomes more and more manipulative, starts to conspire. He abuses his power to get what he wants, what he desires. He murders. He has Uriah killed in battle. And then he lies and he covers this up. Now think about this. Over half of the Ten Commandments have been violated in just this episode, this portion of the narrative. It's an amazing period of Scripture. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is disgraced. And, and, And in her disgrace, she knows what happens. When news comes back that Uriah is dead, she knows. She knows what must have happened. Joab, the general, the commander of David's army, he knows what happened. The people in the palace, they're counting on the months as this child is being born. They know that the months don't add up. They know what's happening. What's going on here? David is starting to lose the public trust that got him the kingdom, that helped to build the foundations of his kingdom. One of the greatest figures in ancient history, the longest narrative of a single human life in the Bible, and still his life completely explodes, completely blows up. I mean, this is David. David wrote 
the Psalms, many of the Psalms are written by David. He was a poet. He was a warrior. He was a king. Psalm 40, verse 8, he says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David wrote that. David meant that when he wrote that. And yet he did this, this faithful warrior, this king, this poet, whom God himself said he's a man after my heart. What does this tell you? And it tells us a lot, but what does it tell us? The seeds of the most terrible atrocities. The seeds of the most terrible atrocities. The worst possible deeds, they reside in every human heart. That's what this teaches us. Even the best people, kings, scholars, poets, writers, people who've been converted by God. David was all these things. When you look at today's atrocities, when you look at today's injustices, it's easy to say, man, what terrible thing twisted that person to become what that person is. What you're really saying is this, in other words, I could never do that. I am not capable of doing that. Now think about this. Right from the beginning of the Bible, there was no greater representative in the Bible to represent his, God's people than Adam. And yet Adam falls into sin. Continue on in Genesis, in the book of Genesis. Abraham, great Abraham, father Abraham goes to Egypt. The Pharaoh falls in love with his wife Sarah. And what does Abraham do? Protect his wife? Risk his life for his wife? No. He calls her his sister so his life was spared and allows her, basically pimps her off to the Pharaoh. It's an amazing thing. Jacob, constantly lying, scheming, cheating, stealing, tears apart his family, takes on many wives. Peter, the apostle Peter, in the New Testament, He says, I will never let anybody take you away, Jesus. I will never let anything happen to you, Jesus. And then in the next episode, the next narrative, he curses Jesus, denies Jesus, his friend, his king. He swears he doesn't know him. This is a man who swore to protect him, swore to protect him, and says, no, he curses Jesus. Do you think you're better than any of them? Can you really look at this episode and say, I could never do that? I can never be like that. The minute you say that, what this text teaches us is that the minute you say that, you're taking an enormous leap to actually doing it because the worst thing that you can believe is that you're incapable of doing any of these things. That's going to make you more capable, and here's why. The seeds of these awful things, they're in our hearts. What is a seed? A seed is small. You step on seeds every day. You don't even realize it. A seed is so small, minuscule, but out of that one little seed, there's tremendous power and potential and resource to do what? Build an oak tree. A forest of oak trees. Do you know one tree is enough, pretty much has enough seeds to populate pretty much the rest of the earth? If you think about it, because those seeds fall, they create other trees, one seed has that kind of power. One tree probably has enough seeds to cover the entire world in that sense. Small but incredibly powerful. Think about your life. When you see self-pity and resentment, just a seed of resentment, just a seed of envy, a seed of jealousy, a seed of your hurt pride, a seed of of self-centeredness, when those seeds fall into the right soil and they're watered just well enough, 
They can destroy the world. And yet, what do we do? We tolerate it every day. There's not a single person here that is depressed about the seed of sin that they may or may not even see in their lives. Why do we do that? It's because deep inside, we don't really believe that we're, that we're capable of these things. We don't believe that. And you know why? Think. Even the people who say, I'm a Christian, I believe that I've been saved by grace. My worth and my value are founded in Jesus' love for me. We have seminarians who sit in this congregation. But here's how the heart operates. Your self-image is moment-to-moment based on being better than other people. Just by nature, we come in. We're by nature, the Bible says we are worshipers. So by nature, we are constantly comparing ourselves with other people, with things around us, people who are better than us, worse than us, more inferior, because by nature... We are built to be creations of the great creator. So by nature, there is a comparison. And in that, we're constantly comparing because that vertical relationship is broken. We're constantly comparing ourselves with other people around us. And everybody's like that. When we think that way, our self-image, when we think that our self-image is based on, you know, I'm better than so-and-so, we're going to screen out the reality of what those seeds are really capable of doing in our lives. And so we live with them. And so what happens? These seeds, even the best of us, these seeds start to sprout. The Bible tells us that we are capable of the worst deeds possible. That's the first point, the power of sin. And here's an application we can learn from this. John Owen, a British theologian, he lived in the 17th century. He said this, very famous phrase, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Look for those seeds. It's a lot easier to squash a seed than to uproot an oak tree. Look for those seeds. Some people are saying, but it's, it's so hard. I struggle with that. It's so hard. I see the sin. It's so hard. If I'm really being real with you, it's really hard. You know why? It's because it's already growing into a tree. Squash them now. Take the time. Uproot them now. Deal with it now. Stop putting up with your anger. Stop putting up with your pride. Stop putting up with your gossip. Stop putting up with jealousy and envy that, that need to compare yourself with other people. Stop putting up with the, the self-absorption about your looks and, and your figure. Don't let that tree grow. Don't let the cancer grow. That's the power of sin. The second point is the power of friendship, real friendship. Verse 27, we know that, you know, if you kind of see this scene, we're going to fast forward a little bit, but all this conspiracy has taken place. David was first trying to spare Uriah by getting him to sleep with his wife so that the timing would work out that they would bear a child and he would be scot clean, he would be free. But Uriah is such a, he lives the life that David should have lived. He's in battle. He's with his men. He's honorable. He's living the life that David should have lived. He's living a kingly life. He refuses to sleep with his wife because his men are out there and they're suffering. And he says, I can't do that. And David, you know, his cards have been dealt, and he realizes I, his hand is, I don't know what to do. He says, I'm going to go get him killed. They send him and some men into battle, a battle that they cannot win alone, and they die. Now, think about this. They die. Joab comes to David, and he is mourning. Uriah, the great mighty man, has died. And David, if you look at his response, he's, he says, well, that's what that's what happens. That's what happens to warriors. Don't let this upset you, Joab. That's what he says. Don't let this upset you. Warriors die. 
And you can imagine as he's saying that, they're charging. He says, I want you to win this victory for me. And they charge, and they're fighting in battle. And in the great, the, the, this, this period where there's victory and triumph undergirding, underlying all this is scandal and sin and conspiracy. And, and here's David in this proud moment, but he knows. He knows. And more importantly, verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And take a look at who God sends to talk to David. He sends Nathan, a friend of David. He sends Nathan, and Nathan doesn't come charging at David. Instead, he says, I want to talk to you about a case. Now, commentators will say this is like a parable. But it's, you know, remember, there was no executive branch. This is not a democracy. So there was no executive branch. There was no judicial branch of government. The king was the judge. The king was the court. And most, in all cases, the king's job was to sit throughout the day. If you watch shows like Game of Thrones, the king is to sit on the throne, and people bring their cases up to the king, and the king rules, judges, based on, and David, he's knowledgeable of the law. He loves the law. He knows the law. And so Nathan comes to David and says, I want to talk to you about a case. And uh, what was the case? Verses 1 to 7, chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, you see this. Here's a rich man who had many flocks, many flocks and herds. And here's this poor man who's got one little ewe lamb. This lamb for that poor man was like his family, like his daughter. Drank from his cup, slept in his arms. And that's all that this poor man had. Now the rich man encounters a traveler. And in that ancient times, even today in, the, in that culture, hospitality is probably one of the greatest virtues in that culture, even today in many ways. And so the rich man is socially obligated to tend to this traveler, but he doesn't want to do it at his own cost. So what does he do? He takes that little ewe lamb that this poor man owned, slaughters it now. We don't know how he took it. He could have, he could have maybe offered some money in the beginning or something like that. Maybe the guy declined. But either through an abuse of power or through just cheating and stealing, he, he basically takes this ewe lamb, has it slaughtered, expenses it just like that, feeds it to the traveler. Now, Nathan says, what do we do about this? King David, what do we do? And David says two things, and they're very, very interesting. The first thing he says, well, one of the things he says is, this rich man has to pay four times over for this. And that's perfectly fitting. It's part of the Mosaic law. If you read the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law stipulates that. And basically, if you're robbed or defrauded if, and you get caught, you have to pay four times the amount. David knows the law. David loves the law. David understands the law. He's such a good judge. But the important thing, the interesting thing here it says is he burned with anger at this. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. Now, there's nothing in the Mosaic Law that says that stealing somebody's lamb deserves capital punishment. David's over the top. David is furious with anger. Now, on one hand, you look at how lawful David is. He says, four times over, this person needs to pay. He knows the law. He loves the law. But he himself broke the law. He himself broke the law. And when he's guilty, what happens? He becomes self-righteous. Now, we all, none of us are strangers to that. He becomes self-righteous. One of the ways of covering over our sins is to put other people to death. That's what we do. That's what gossip is. The way you know 
that somebody is covering over their sins. For me as a pastor, it's very easy to tell when somebody is covering over their own sins because of their gossip. They love to gossip. People just love to gossip. You know why? Because we're all sinners. We love to talk. And, and uh, what's happening here? David, his conscience is starting to wake up. And he's unusually, inordinately sensitive to this case. Now think about it. When your spouse or a good friend of yours confronts you, they say to you, you know, like Nathan in many ways, they say to you, you're like this. You know, Nathan says, you are that man. You're like this. How do you respond? Most of us, I would, I would venture to say most of us don't say, I have sinned against the Lord. We don't do that. We flare up in anger. We respond immediately, right? We respond unjustly, unusually sometimes, and we say, well, look at you. You're like this and this and this and this. What they said, what you said, what your spouse said, or what your friend has said to you has awakened your conscience. And we react. We respond that way. Think about this. How do you know that God is calling you to repent? First, your guilt. Your conscience is stirred. And how do you know that? Because sometimes you don't even realize this because you see this in the criticism that you have towards other people. You criticize flaws of other people. You start to become incredibly sensitive about their flaws and incredibly defensive about your flaws. Sensitive to criticism about yourself. That's how you know. This is David's own guilt. It's starting to come back and stab him. That's what happens. That's what's happening here. It's why he's so angry. It's why he's so furious. Who is this person? Does he not know justice in my kingdom? Does he not know where he is? Does he not know who his king is? Nathan says, that is you. You are that person. Now, remember, Nathan, he's a good friend. He doesn't come charging into the palace saying, you are that man. Our spouses, our friends tend to do that to us. But Nathan is such a good friend. And he's such a wise friend. That was not the introduction. That was the conclusion. And this is so important. This is incredibly important in understanding grace. Look at David. David is a liar. David is an adulterer. David is a conspirer. David is a murderer. And here's Nathan who's been called by God to speak into David's life, to bring up charges against David. He had every right and reason to just bust into the palace. Now, he could have been killed for that. David is the king. But, and that's part of the reason why, because he's navigating David's uh, defensive traps. And uh, he, he basically, uh, he could have come in, he could have charged at him, but what does he do? He's a prophet. And he's called on top of that to reflect the grace of God. This is how gracious God is. Even at the slightest possibility and chance that we would change, God is patient. God is so patient. He's so compassionate. God is so merciful. Knowing that we have the slightest chance at change, he waits. And he sends us good friends to speak to us. He doesn't condemn. He speaks to us. That's the purpose of Nathan. And Nathan understands that. That's what he's going for. He's going for conversion. He's going for conviction. Look at the gentleness of God. Because it's very easy to condemn. You know, it's very easy to condemn in such a way that you could raise someone's defense mechanisms so that there's no way that they will ever repent. And you feel justified in doing that. On one hand, it glorifies God for you to bring truth. The Bible, his word, his law is truth. So on one hand, we're called to bring truth. But on the other hand, It glorifies God even more when they repent, right? 
And that's what Nathan's going for. That's what he's after. What a friend he is. David is not like that here. David says, this man deserves to die. Nathan comes to David with a case. He says, we need to talk about something here. Let's talk. And in seeing David's conscience flare up, he's navigating all the booby traps, right? He's a great point guard. He's navigating the lane. And once he drives in, he says, he takes a shot. He says, you are that man. Nathan knows. He knows everything. He says, I have a case for you. But Nathan also knows, you know, if I condemn this person, it's going to make them almost impossible for them to repent. They'll be guilty, they'll be convicted, but they won't repent. And he understood. And so he's navigating around the reality. First of all, he knows. He knows the human condition. Nathan understands that that you don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'll commit adultery. And I think I'll have my friend killed. And I think I'm going to conspire and cheat and lie and steal. Not without spinning some web of rationalization and putting up defense mechanisms and self-deception all around. David is this perfect example of what happens in our lives all the time. We do this all the time. I'm going to give you a couple examples. First, people in power, people of wealth. We sacrifice a lot to get to where we are, right? You study hard from the youngest of ages. If you think about your journey of getting to where you are today, you work incredibly hard to get where you are. It takes a tremendous amount of discipline, and that discipline doesn't happen overnight. You have to build that discipline over time. And so you work and you give, and especially if you're a public figure. If you're a public figure, you're going to give of yourself. You're going to give and give. You have no life to your own. You're going to bear the opposition and the criticism of other people outside of you, especially public figures, right? And so much of that criticism may be false or wrong or misconstrued, and people are filled with personal agendas, but you bear that. So after a while, after a while, you're suffering, you're giving, you're sacrifice. Deep inside, you start to develop the seed of self-pity. Nobody understands the things that I've, I put up with. Nobody understands the sacrifices that I've made to get to where I am. Nobody understands the things that I have to endure for the sake of my people. So, when the opportunity comes for something that's going to benefit you and you alone, and it may not be the most ethical way of doing it, approaching it, or the moral way of approaching it, at first, you initially, you reject it. You say, I'm an honorable man. But over time, you start to give in. And after a while, you know what you say? Why don't I deserve that? I deserve this. So the seed has now sprouted and growing into a tree. And after a while, once you start to commit these acts, you say, oh, now I've got to cover it up. So at first, you know, you don't really feel like a liar. You don't feel like a cheater. You don't feel like an adulterer. And after a while, you start to develop, though, this delusional field of self-pity and self-deception. That's what happens. That's David. I'll give you another example, maybe a little bit more close to home. Moms and dads, you're going to give, and you're going to sacrifice. You're going to pour into your children. You're going to do that, right? And, uh, and it's thankless. It's, it's a, you're never thanked. You're never honored. There's no, I don't know, a single child at, at any young age is going to sit there and say, today I will honor my parents for what they have done. Do you understand? You don't see the older brother talking to the younger brother and saying, do you understand the sacrifices that our parents have made to give us the lives that we live? We need to be grateful. We need to live with gratitude. They don't do that. They live very thankless lives. 
But you put family above all things. Your health even, your work, your relationships, all these things are put at bay, even your spiritual maturity. And so you organize your life and your priorities, your schedule around your children, around your family, and you're never thanked for this. You're never honored for this, maybe not even acknowledged for this. So when the temptation comes for you to take a break, or when the opportunity comes, for instance, to reach out to community, you say, don't I deserve a break? I'm tired. Golf or community? Community is work, right? I mean, there's not a single person here who's been a part of this church early that will say community is easy. Community takes work. You've got to be intentional. Nobody came in here and said, hey, best friend. We, people came in and they, they had to slowly get to, you know, even sitting next to each other was a challenge in the beginning, right? And so when that opportunity comes, we, we opt out. Now, we don't just opt out because we're smarter than that. You know what we say? I'm called to be a parent first, right? God has put me in charge of my family, right? God has called me to Sabbath rest, right? I'm obeying God. We don't outright believe we're disobeying. You know why? Because there's a seed, and a seed starts to sprout. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like David. It sounds like King Saul. But God is gracious. He sends friends. Friends that we can't escape from. Someone who knows you and loves you. And on one hand is not afraid to challenge you, who's called to you, but on the other hand, he knows how to navigate all those traps, knows how to navigate. And they act as a vehicle of the grace of God. Here's Nathan. He comes at David, but first he tries to disarm him. He tries to convict him. He gets into David's story with a story. He gets into his story. And he gets him to this place where David's shield is down, his defenses are down, and then he speaks into him. Now, it's always going to feel, whenever you have confrontations, it's always going to feel like a trial. Whenever you're, there's no way that, uh, and if you figure out a way, please tell me, but there's no way when you are being confronted by your spouse or when you're confronting your spouse, when you're confronted by a good friend or you're confronting a good friend, there's no way. It's always going to feel a little bit like a courtroom. There's going to be questions and there's going to be responses and there's going to be tension and there's going to be discomfort, right? But there's love. And that love has to be greater than anything else. You're not just after truth. I mean, if you were just after truth, you don't have to be a good friend. You're after love. Most of us are not as shrewd as Nathan. Most of us are not as responsive as David. We're not as repentive or receptive as David. But the point is we need to be Nathans. We're called to be Nathans. You have friends. They have flaws. They have self-deception swirling around their lives, right? And they need a Nathan. They have deficiencies that are hurting them, possibly killing them. And, and most of the other friends, they're not telling them because their defenses are so, they've been put up, the walls have been put up, and it's very, very difficult to navigate them. So be a Nathan. Be a Nathan like Nathan. There, you know, there's a way that you can tell a truth, tell truth that doesn't honor the truth. Because the intent of the law, the intent of the truth is what? To reveal the inadequacy, to reveal the deficiency and the sin, but to point to the way. To point to the only way that you can heal. So you've got to be a Nathan. You know, uh, your friends need that. Your friends need that. The love and the humility and the courage at the same time uh, that begets wisdom 
and grace. Now, you don't, you're not just called to be a Nathan. You need Nathans in your life. Everybody needs Nathan. Um, if you look at the word of encouragement, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another daily, it says. Exhort, encourage one another daily, right? Lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. To exhort actually means here to confront. Confront one another daily about what? Here's what it is. We're called to confront people in such a way, or you're called to confront people, even ask people, request of people, the way in which you're missing what your sins are. It's a very, very, it takes a certain kind of person, a certain kind of humility to be able to do that. And it's because of this. The biggest things that are killing you in your life, you can't see. Because if it really starts like a seed and sprouts, it's going to be slow. It's going to be like a cell which grows into a tumor. It's not until it's too late when it's taken over the whole system. You understand that? Scripture always teaches us that the things that are destroying us most are the things that we see the least about ourselves. We need Nathans because our Nathans see. Our Nathans know. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to go to them. And you're going to say, I can't tell when I'm being like this. But I know. I can't tell when I'm being like this. I can't tell how, these, how the many ways that this sin manifests itself. I, like, I see this, but there's probably 15 other ways that it manifests itself. I'm giving you a warrant for my arrest. I'm giving you the green light. Will you show me? Will you arrest me? Do you have a friend like that? We need friends like that. Can you be a friend like that? Can you get a friend like that? The power of friendship. So we talked about the power of sin, the power of friendship, and the last point is the assurance of pardon, the power of grace, the power of God's forgiveness. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. It's not just that David committed uh, adultery and he committed murder. In fact, in order to kill Uriah, he had to have a number of people killed around him. You can't just send Uriah into battle. That would be too obvious. He had to send a decent group of people to make it look realistic enough. He had all those people killed. They had no idea why. He had sent them all into battle. And Joab, you know, he had to send as a general, a commanding officer, understanding and knowing what's probably going on, sending his best men into battle, not just Uriah. David endangered the lives of of many people to save himself. He's become so self-preserving. David did this. Now think about Uriah. He's dying for his friend. He had the honor. He had the love. He had the courage. But it's, it's actually not about that. You know, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sins. You are not going to die. How does God do that? David is in this courtroom with Nathan, and Nathan is so gracious. But he's still on trial, right? He's on trial. In John chapter 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate, Pontius Pilate. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David is the king who really should be the judge, but he's the one on trial. And he should be condemned, but Nathan says, you are free. In John chapter 19, Jesus is the king who should be the judge, 
but he's the one on trial. Except he should be set free, but he is condemned. You know, for David, God sends a prophet, and this prophet comes, and he's going to make everything right. He says, you are the man, and he's going to make everything right. But no one comes to Jesus for Jesus. No one busts into Pilate's courtroom. No one comes with a story that's going to make all the wrong things right. No one's going to sit there and say, no, and he point to the Pharisees and say, you are the men. No one does that. On the cross, nobody shows up. Here's Jesus. You think, where's the hero? Where's the hero? Where's the hero? Where's the rescue? Now Jesus is on the cross. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's been torn apart, torn to shreds to the point where he was unrecognizable, takes that journey with his own cross all the way up to Calvary, and he's now hung on Calvary. And you think at every stage, Where's the rescue? There's no prophet that comes in and says, set set him free. He's left completely alone. He's condemned. David, he's the king. He should be the judge. He's tried. He's accused. He's guilty. He's charged. But he's forgiven. But Jesus is the king, the ultimate king. He's the judge. He's the ultimate judge. He's tried. He's accused. He's innocent. Innocent. Yet charged and forsaken. David is forgiven. Jesus is forsaken. The judge of all the earth did nothing. He did nothing wrong, but he dies condemned. Now why? It's so that we, he did this for you. He did this for me. He did this for us. When we repent, we can receive forgiveness. Jesus will condemn for us, his people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus stood where we deserve to stand. Jesus died where we deserve to die. Jesus lived the life that we should live, then died the death that we should die. And on the cross, Jesus is alone He says, I've been forsaken. Why have you forsaken me? There's no one to acquit him. People are just hurling insults and charging him. He suffers the total pounding of the fury and the wrath of God. Why? So that we can experience the love of God. Do you see that? You know, when you repent, you're not earning salvation. That's why. That's why when you repent, you're not earning salvation. You're just accessing it. You're just appropriating it. Do you get that? The salvation has been earned already by Christ. You're just accessing it. You live a joyless life, you're not in repentance. You're not accessing it. We live in an age where we like to say that sin is a a compounding factor of of our environment, our circumstances. And uh, the world has made, especially Western civilization, has looked at um, the flaws of people and has come to in some ways glorify the flaws that's what we've done. And what we're doing is, and, and yet people are more unhappy in this connected world where we're, we've kind of airbrushed sin out of even the church. No one has joy. In the season of joy, people are sad, people are depressed, and they're walking away from the church because of that. Here's Jesus. He's saying, I've earned forgiveness for you. Not because of your good record, but because of my good record. And not because of any sacrifice that you've made or can make, 
but because of the sacrifice that I've made and only I can make, I was condemned in your place. Your repentance just acts as it. When you look at the cross, what do you see? You got to see Jesus' love. You got to see his suffering. Who was that for? It was for you. It was for me. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of God's love. That's the power of God's grace. That's the assurance of God's pardon. To forgive, to pardon, but to power our repentance. That's the response. John Owen says, be killing sin or it will kill you. Now you have the power to kill it. You have the power to uproot the tree. You have the power to squash that seed. Repentance accesses that power. So what do we got to do? We got to submit to our Nathans. We got to be Nathans. We got to submit to our Nathans in our lives. We got to, it's going to power you. You know, the grace of God powers you to be a great Nathan, but also gives you the courage to submit to them too. Lastly, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. You know, um, just a quick personal story. You know, when I was, uh, I've, I've counseled youth and children for a very, very long time. Most of my ministerial life has been counseling children and youth. And in recent years, um, I, I've had, I have a lot of the older children. Uh, one of my children, one of my guys, um, admitted to rape, raping somebody. And um, multiple times. Um, somebody at, at a later stage in his life and somebody within his own family at a younger stage in his life. Tremendously painful, harboring that guilt and what that's done to, to twist, that sin is done to twist and corrupt his soul and his life. And I got to be honest with you, when I'm sitting here, you know, as a pastoral figure, number one, there's a lot of confidence and, and privacy, and you got to sit here, and I got to sit here, and I got to bear that. Here's this person confessing to hurting, you know, his sibling and hurting other women. And I, everything within my power, I'm not sitting here, and it's very, very difficult for me to sit there and say, but do you know that you can experience forgiveness? I'm doing everything in my power to restrain myself from choking this kid to death. Right? You know what stops you? Because you see your own sin. You know. Am I not capable of that? What makes me different? You know what makes you different? The only thing that can power you is repentance. That's the only thing. It's the only thing that can protect you, shield you, power your, your faith, power, uh, empower you to submit to Nathan's in your life. That's it. That's it. Some of us have done some really, really horrible things. What this passage shows us, listen, if David's life can blow up, anyone's life can blow up. But if David's life can be healed, Anyone can be renewed. Anyone can be healed. Friends, Jesus lived a life that we should live. He died the death that we should die. The Advent is a celebration, is an observance, is our anticipation for the return in many ways of the king. He was a greater king than David ever could be. He was a greater warrior than David or Uriah could ever be. He was more faithful than David. He is a true man after God's heart. He's a true king, truly just, truly righteous, and yet he was punished, placed on trial, and sacrificed for us.
That's the power of forgiveness. Every time you look at the cross, that's forgiveness. It is assured. Either you believe that that didn't happen, right? Or you've got to believe that it happened for you. That's what powers our repentance. Can you trust that? Can you believe that? Can you, what kind of life? It's a season of thanksgiving and giving, right? Will that power your gratitude? David said, I've sinned against the Lord. He knows. To be a man after God's own heart is to know, is to trust in who God is, his character and his work for us. Do you? Let's pray.